91.7 WVXU is proud to support this and other locally produced podcasts through its podcast network for an easy-to-navigate curated list of some of the best local and national podcasts. Visit Podcast Central at wvxu.org slash podcast central. Welcome to The 12th Story, a podcast from the Mercantile Library where readers gather to connect, debate, and discuss. The Literary Center of Cincinnati, The Mercantile, is a 183-year-old working library with more than 80,000 books available to members. The library organizes book discussion groups and writing workshops and welcomes thousands every year to its author talks, lectures, and other civic events. Harriet Beecher Stowe and Herman Melville, Colson Whitehead and Zadie Smith all have spoken at Mercantile events. Located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati, we always welcome new members and guests. You belong here. I'm Hillary Copsey, book advisor at the Mercantile. Joining us today in the reading room on the 12th story of the Mercantile building are Ayanna Workman and Andrew Fillets, who play the lead characters in Miss Bennett, Christmas at Pemberley, now showing at Cincinnati Playhouse in the park. The production is a sequel to Jane Austen's classic Pride and Prejudice. Ayana, Andrew, thanks for joining us Hi, today. Hi, thank Hello. you for having us. I'm excited to talk about this play, which is wonderful, and showing through November, November 10th. 10th. Yes, People have plenty of time to go see it still. Indeed. So I'm curious, prior to this show, had you read Pride and Prejudice? Okay, full disclosure. <laughs> um, no, I did not. I read the play in preparation for. I, I knew about Pride and Prejudice through high school and just through the movies and through the media, but I didn't really I wasn't really like raised on the story or on Jane Austen. But I, I knew of it as a story. So I when I read this play to audition for it, um, I I felt a little bit like I wasn't fully in the know. So then when I got cast, I read the play and then was able to kind of connect to it more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, read the book, sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's kind of interesting. What yeah. about you, Andrew? Yeah. yeah, I kind of read it by accident. I think I read it when I was at university and I, I was a chemistry major. Um, and I, I was on a kick of, I should read some literature. Because <laughs> I, I, I already had an inkling that I wanted to become an actor. And so I thought, oh yeah, it sounds like an improving book. Pride and Prejudice. Sounds like crime and punishment. <laughs> Something solid. And so I didn't really know what I was in for at all. Um, and so I got quite a surprise. I really enjoyed it. And yeah, it's uh, pretty funny. And then since then, I went back and I saw the TV series that the BBC did. And, um, and then in preparation for this, I, I reread it, but I did it on an audiobook. Oh, um, how was that? It was uh, wonderful. It was read by a fantastic, wonderful British actress called Juliette Stevenson. Mm -hmm. And uh, she is a master of all those voices and characters. I'm curious, Ayana, as someone who hadn't come to it before and then yeah. you got cast and you came yeah. back, did you did you find it relevant? Did you like it? I felt it was incredibly relevant and I loved it a lot. I felt like as women and as like as Jane Austen's like portrayal of women and family and self-discovery and love, I just felt it very relatable. And um then being able to work on this play and the way it kind of like made a modernized version of it, I just felt like it was like seamless in this time in 2018 and it was very relatable for me and from my story and what I had to bring from it. Yeah, so, I had yeah. a similar thing. I, re I read it when I was younger and I don't think I got it all that much, right? Right, yeah. Um, and then when reading it as an adult um, and, and in this time, like it is incredibly funny and there's some biting and some interesting questions about choice and obligation, which the production, Christmas at Pemberley, delves into even deeper than the book in some ways. Um, I, I read um, a Q&A with your director and she talked about how 
um, the play takes these kind of side characters that are really only there to, you know, make Lizzie and Darcy look good, yeah. right? You know, <laughs> Mary Bennett and um, some of the other folks, and and considers them as full personalities worth consideration. Um, I want to talk more about them, but Andrew, your character is kind of brand new. Can you tell us about mm. Andrew? Well, I mean, or when I uh, got cast as Sorry. Arthur... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're Andrew. I'm your Andrew. Your character is the Arthur. <laughs> Arthur de Berg. Arthur de Berg is um, another long-lost nephew of um, Lady Catherine de Berg, who is the nemesis, the villain of the piece of the original Pride and Prejudice. And <clears throat> he's never mentioned in the original Pride and Prejudice, so they've invented him for the purposes or dug him into existence for the purposes of the sequel. Um, and, but he fits exactly into that world. He's an Oxford man, as he's described by mm -hmm. Darcy. And uh, you, they've, they've seamlessly worked in this brand new character um, into the world. He, he feels very much part of that fabric. He really, really does. And then there's Mary. And there's Mary. <laughs> I love it. She's, in the book, kind of a little horrible. She kind of sucks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but in the play... <laughs> I mean, yeah. She's delightful. Yeah. I mean, I felt a little like Mr. Darcy um, when he says, you've grown <clears throat> so much. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about how Mary Bennett has changed over the two years? So the play elapses two years from the end of the book, right? Yeah. When the marriage plot is finished and Lizzie and Darcy are married. Right. So tell us about Mary over those two years. What has changed for her? Yeah, I think um, during the two years uh, between the end of Pride and Prejudice and the beginning of our play, everyone leaves Longburn and she is alone with her family. And um, if you remember from the book, she is always very much like in her music and in the books, and she's a bit of a nerd. And kind of a know-it-all, Kind too. of a know-it-all. Yeah. Like she likes to lecture and she likes to read sermons to everyone. Mm -hmm. And um, in these two years, she has a chance to be like fully immersed in this world of, of knowledge and of in her own um, in her own world. But I think that in the beginning of this play, she's at a point where she, it's it's not no longer enough. I think that she's been like put in this role and she's been the middle sister, the dutiful middle sister, mm -hmm. and she's taking care of her parents and taking care of her family. And I think that we can all relate to a point in our life where we kind of just like wake up one day and we're like, hey, like I'm this person and maybe I'm this person because I've been told that yeah. I am this person and I want more from myself and I want, I want to explore the world. So I think that she, um, that the, the books and and the knowledge is no longer enough. She wants to live, she wants to explore the world and she wants to actually go to the places that she's read about and she wants to go travel and she wants to experience and live a large life. So I think she's like matured and she's questioning who she is and she's yeah. questioning her role in society and her role as a woman. And so then we get to meet her in the beginning of this play where she's just kind of in this like uh, adolescent crisis of like, who am I and I want more. Yeah, and it's like a quarter life crisis, Quarter right? life crisis, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What struck me about all of that is it made complete sense to me. Mm. I mean, even as someone who's read Austen and loved it and feels strongly about that book, like I could totally see how there's a point in the play where she says I, you know, something about being out of the shadow of her older sisters yeah. and she's coming to herself, right? Yeah, yeah. And it completely made total sense that she would go from being this kind of know-it-all to still being a know-it-all, but being more confident in who she is. And so it's not quite as defensive. Right. And I don't know if it's so much of like being a, 
at least for as the actor playing Mary, I don't know if it's as much being a know-it-all, whether other than the fact that she she feels comfortable in the facts that she learns, and I mm -hmm. think that's where she like flourishes, and that's where her joy is, and that's where, you know, she, that's what she knows. Um, but beyond that, she, I think, through meeting Arthur, she's able to kind of learn more about herself and the fact that she, I mean, she's unapologetic. She's just very observant, yeah. and 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 yeah. And I mean, I remember when I was at school, I, was, I think I was probably a bit of a <clears throat> an annoying little clever clogs, um, <laughs> and you don't learn finesse and and those kind of things that temper that until a bit later on. Um, and she's young in the book. Yeah. Yeah, very she's much not, so. She's a, she's a young... I mean, how old is she in the end of the book? She's about 16 or something. She's like 16, 17. Yeah, yeah, she's in her um, teens. Like, she's yeah, still a kid, yeah. really, in some ways. And, you know, in, with four other sisters. Is it four? Yeah. Four. Yeah. Um, I, and I, I'm one of four as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to get noticed. <laughs> and one way to get noticed is to be correct. Mm -hmm. I'm the one that's correct. Um, <laughs> I mean, my sister was the one that was loud. Um, my youngest brother was the one that was naughty. And so I, I was the one who was piping up with the answer to things. Right. We all have those labels right in yeah. our family, which is something this show really delves into. The relationship between all three, well, the three sisters that are there um, is really just fascinating to watch, like how their relationship is shifting as they age and grow. Um, before we go that way, though, um, Ayana, you talked about um, choice and like your position in life. And it felt to me like that's a lot of what this play is talking about for both the characters, Arthur and Mary. Can you guys talk a little bit about that? Um, their, their kind of struggle between obligation and expectation versus what they actually want in life. Um, I think at least uh, during the time frame that this play takes place and then also now, um, I think as a woman, Mary is realizing that she is like her, uh, what she is expected of her is to be a wife, mm -hmm. you know, to be that she needs to be, a to be a woman and to be a wife and to be the certain person. But I think she's realizing that in that she doesn't have liberty. I mean, there, there's just a, Take over, and then I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's one of my favorite parts. Actually, was Mary giving uh, Arthur the what for about like, dude, you have choice, you have yeah, means, yeah. you have yeah. you have the freedom. It's a very powerful speech that she lays onto Arthur, mm -hmm. and I think is is a kind of a pretty much a pivot point in the play. That's when he really. There's two moments when it sort of she really gives it to him. Um, one pretty early on where she says, "But well, hang about, you have." Money, you have, um, what is it? You have a fam you have you a great have, fortune. You have a great fortune. You have no family. You have no mm -hmm. family, so you Nothing are kind of a free down. agent, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and she really like throws it at him, um, yeah. and especially the contrast with her position. And um, I think that's when he sort of falls for her. Really, mm -hmm. that's the first time someone has opened his eyes to possibility of the world. He's, he's shut himself away. He was an only child, stuck himself in a library. His parents were dead. Mm -hmm. um, and he sequestered himself away in a library, a bit like this one, the Bodleian <laughs> probably, in Oxford. Um, and didn't really see much daylight, I don't think. So he, did, he wasn't aware of his choice. So he suddenly gets this, what he perceives as a hideous burden of a great big estate to suddenly manage, mm -hmm. which is like being locked into a family firm as he sees it. He doesn't see any kind of way out of it until um, yeah. Mary really... Kind of shakes him shakes up. Shakes him, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's wonderful that 
that that character is the one to do it as well because mm-hmm. it's the one you'd least expect to you'd kind of ex- you know traditionally expect Darcy to yeah to give avuncular advice to Arthur he is kind of avuncular that's a good word for him in this play Darcy is e- even not giving necessarily that advice but he takes kind of an interest in Mary and like a father figure yeah kind he's of, kind of yeah. a kinder gentler marriage to Liz- Lizzie has obviously you know suited him right yeah, um, yeah there you know we're talking about choice for your two characters but even on the side there's there are choice and obligations going on for for folks like um Lydia Bennett. Mm-hmm. I thought the character kind of continuation for her and also Anne de Burke yeah. were just fascinating. The the can you talk about that about how you guys go about fleshing those characters out? I realize they're not your characters, but did you guys talk about that or how how to to bring those those people to life as real people? Well, Anne de Burke's an interesting one in that um she also is another one who doesn't perceive that she has choice. Mm-hmm. She thinks she's locked into this thing of having to marry Arthur. She doesn't really love him. Mm-hmm. She says that they're fond of each other. Mm-hmm. I don't think she really understands what anything... I don't think she understands... She, I don't think she's fallen in love before. Yeah, she's been told um, that this is what's going to happen to her. You're very fond of this young man, so you'll marry him. Mm-hmm. By her uh, mom. By, yeah. by <laughs> the fearsome Lady Catherine yes. before she... <laughs> Shuffles off. And, um, Shuffles. <laughs> um, and so I think that was, I mean, I can't speak for um, Katie, who, Katie Kell, who plays Who is her, brilliant. Who's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. But I certainly, I remember conversations in the rehearsal room were, were about that's, that's the human vulnerability for, for Anne de Berg, is that she's, she, She's she's trying to survive, mm-hmm. basically. And I think actually Lydia is similar, where she's actually not very happy mm-hmm. in the marriage that she's in, and she's also kind of feeling stuck, and that she doesn't really have a choice. So the interesting thing that we talked about in the room is that the three of them, Mary, Anne, and Lydia, are all actually very similar. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. I love at the end how Anne and Lydia become like little pals, and we always joke about how they're gonna like, you know what. That there should be like a play afterwards. Like I the Lydia agree. I mean, completely. I would watch it. Yeah, me yeah. too. <laughs> I loved that. A yeah, spin-off, yeah. A spin-off makeover show. Yeah. These. Yeah. And yeah. It was inter- again as a reader. It was really interesting to me how much I loved that mm-hmm. because they're those two characters. Like it's pretty vastly like a complete 180 from from their their characters in the book. But it made complete sense to your point, uh, Andrew, that they're, they're trying to survive and that this would be their kind of narrative arc. And I, I, was, I was, I left the playhouse thinking like what that would look like and what their relationship would be like. Yeah. You know, this is something you guys do a lot as actors is you have these classic stories, whether it's, in this case, it is a book that you guys are continuing, but also, I mean, Shakespeare, how many times has Shakespeare been done, right? <laughs> so how do you approach that as an actor, these kind of retelling these stories that have been told and told and told and, and people have ideas in their head. So how, how do you approach that, trying to make it new and make it fresh? Yeah, I mean, I think as a production, I think those characters like Elizabeth Darcy and Mr. Darcy that had like a very, the focus was very much on them in the prior stories. I think those actors definitely were um, focused on honoring the idea of them and then also, you know, making it their own and making it kind of matched in this world. I think as Mary, I kind of lucked out that she is in the prior books, but she doesn't really get that much spotlight. So I feel like 
uh, Lauren and Margot did a really good job in modernizing her and giving her kind of like a whole new, whole new story, a whole new um, beginning. So I felt like I was able to honor the idea of her, you know, honor that kind of snarkiness and that um, kind of like know-it-allness <laughs> that we all recognize from the previous stories, but also make it my own and make it in my body and make it uh, relevant to the, the world that we created. So I feel like it's it's we expanded on what people know and love, yeah. you know. I had a much easier job because yeah. Arthur, <laughs> Arthur, you won't find any mention of Arthur in the book. No, you're brand new. Um, and so you've only got what he or anybody else says about him to yeah. go by. Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I think um, the two people who might have had some of the hardest lift in this show is actually Lizzie and Darcy. Yeah, they did, yeah. Because they are such, like, totemic characters, characters. literature. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. felt a little to me like kind of fan service, their their characters, <laughs> because they are just perfect, right? They're they're still so clearly in love and they're yeah. nice and, and, well, and they they've been on quite a journey through Pride and Prejudice to this point of unification. Um, and so we kind of I think what we're seeing after is it two years two after years, yeah. we're seeing the effect that each one has had on the other of of this successful marriage where the better parts of each one has tempered the the less attractive characteristics of the other. And so they've mellowed. Darcy's a much mellowed Darcy, and Lizzie is a much... She's less hot-headed than in the book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what this play does really well is that through um, Mary's journey and through like her self-discovery and her like being brave enough to share it with her sisters, Lizzie is starting to kind of realize things about herself and about mm -hmm. how maybe she is supposed to be this like perfect... Um, lady of the house, and actually sometimes she just wants to be like silly, funny Lizzie, you mm -hmm. know, and I think they all, all of the sisters learn about themselves through kind of this this journey that Mary's on. Yeah, I did really love the sisters' relationship. Yeah. Um, and to your point earlier, Andrea, about that, that kind of looking past like the labels that you get in a family and actually like treating each other as a whole adult person yeah. like have you guys experienced that you mentioned Andrew that you have a role in your family do you still have that mm, I mean I think that's like Darcy and Lizzie's you mellow as you get older mm -hmm. so um, as me and my siblings are all now adults uh, yeah there's less clamor to be seen and heard mm -hmm. um, and so I think we appreciate each other a bit more and we're less in competition um, for sure in, in answer to your question before about Arthur and um, what it was like to approach that. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, it, you look for the things that overlap with yourself um, in what, what's written <clears throat> in what's written on the page. And so I, I kind of leaned into that. And he is a bit geeky dweeby. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, what are the overlaps <laughs> then? Tell us more, Andrew. How are you like Arthur? <laughs> It was funny, in rehearsal, I kind of felt I was sort of turning into him. <laughs> I did too. Sometimes I would do some things like Mary, and I'd be like, oh, that's Mary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's testament, actually, to uh, our wonderful director, mm -hmm. Eleanor Holdridge. She, she's who amazing. She is, but she cast... Um, I remember a director telling me this years ago, is 90% of the job of a director is casting. Casting, yeah. And she has cast this very well. Mm -hmm. I, I, you can absolutely see why everyone is in the part they're mm -hmm. in. I really love the, the playwright, too. I had not read um, Melcon, however, but Gunderson, I've seen several of her plays, and she's amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, the dialogue, at least from an 
audience perspective, it always seems so seamless and like natural. And is that your experience as well? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or no. <laughs> you it is, because uh, well, I find it quite hard to say. I found it hard but to I learn. But I think that was so smart of her, right? Like the way yeah. our characters are written are very mm -hmm. different than the other characters in the play. And like the literal dexterity that it takes to say, to like speak these like very intellectual sentences. And like the way Mary's written, She's direct when she like believes in something and she's passionate, but when she's trying to express her feelings to Arthur, it's so around the like it's very every, circular. It's so <laughs> circular and it's so like overly intellectual, and I think that's the testament to the writers. It's like yeah. really trying very, to impress. Everything is very um, purposeful. Yeah. It's yes, it's um, the the action is suited to the word, uh, and it, you know the best. I mean, I find it a, a funny moment, but the best he can say when he's trying to be charming and, and honest and vulnerable, really, is, is that Mary's smile is permeative. <laughs> yes. I mean, and permea <laughs> I mean, permeative is like, it's a word you use to describe cell walls in bacteria. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not a hot word, really. <laughs> but, but for Mary... But, <laughs> but, but the intent behind it is exactly that. And that's, that's the... the the cleverness of the writing. Well, and he clearly doesn't have the language for this kind of relationship no. either. Like the scene where he's talking with Bingley, Bingley and Darcy about his his worry about Mary. That's the best he can describe it mm. as is his worry. I thought that was hilarious. Like he he doesn't they're like it's love. That's what you're feeling. Yeah. yeah. He's un, he's slightly unsocialized because yeah. his parents died when he was young and then he's gone and stuck himself in a a dusty Oxford college and Oxford back in those days was not the the hive of sort of you know um, political and modern thought that mm -hmm. universities can be now. It was it was a dusty old place back then. Yeah, a lot of religion and law was what went on. Yeah, not so much now. No, I mean there's plenty of that as well. But <laughs> uh, that you know students are much more politically engaged than mm, they were back gotcha. then. The kind of people who are students are very different from. 19th century, 17th century students. I mean, my college where I went, um, I didn't go to Oxford, but um, it was set up in 1348 and it was all for priests mm. and lawyers. It was all it was. It's yeah. all you could study. <laughs> Not so much That's now. It. <laughs> so um, one of the running jokes throughout the play is the Christmas tree, yes. which is, right? <laughs> so uh, clearly not a, not a uh, known tradition at the time of the play. But I was curious, do you guys have any favorite Christmas traditions? I, I am, we, we're not very traditional. My family, we go and watch movies. So oh. that's my favorite. We go to the, uh, I have a very small family, so it's just me and my mom. And we go to the movies and we see like two or three movies. And we've been doing that since like, for like five or six years now. Oh, so fun. that's our tradition. That's just, so funny. Yeah. Yeah, mine is very similar to that. Really? In, uh, yeah, my, my little ritual. <laughs> we can do it together. <laughs> my, li my little ritual for about six years, um, and I'm sort of lost without them a little bit now, was... Before on Christmas Eve, before taking the train back to home to see my parents and all my siblings, and like the madhouse that that always right. is, um, I would take myself on my own. Actually, I would go and watch the Lord of the Rings when they were coming out sequentially at Christmas, and then the Hobbit, all six of them, <laughs> and it was my little Christmas present so to myself. So you do it all the time because he was saying he was doing it during this process as actually, well, yeah. like watching all the Lord of the Rings. I was. I sound like a Lord of the Rings nut. Don't you I? are. But it was a perfect antidote, actually, oh, to yeah. the world of Jane Austen, as I used to, at the end of rehearsal, um, 
clear my head with a bit of yeah. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. It was an antidote to Jane Austen. Yeah, in in the what well, antidote? That makes it sound like poison, doesn't it? But <laughs> no, in in the like palate cleanser, in yeah. order to, like to get away from it, so you come back feeling fresh, fresh and excited about it again the next morning. Mm. Away from witty banter and and drawing rooms and to into killing orcs. That's yeah, right. killing orcs. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. I'm reading um, the Lord of the the first Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship, the mm. fel- um, with my eight year old right now. Oh, and he loves what it. A beautiful thing. Yes, yeah. we're just doing. Um, we just left Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, yeah, he's not in the movies. Yes, I know. That's what we were explaining. So he loved The Hobbit already. Anyway. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I'm lost. It's Tangent. Okay. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So the last thing I'd like to ask you guys is, um, so uh, who is this show for? Do you have to be an Austin, like, super fan to see this show? Should you not be an Austin fan at all? Who is this, who is this show for? I defy anyone to not be an Austin fan. Yeah. I mean, first of all. <laughs> um, <laughs> like but that, however, yes. if you haven't read any Austin, you absolutely can come to this and enjoy the play as a standalone play. Um, and maybe it'll even make you want to go and read some Jane Austen, yeah. Pride and Prejudice, or any of the other wonderful novels she wrote. Um, it, it's absolutely yes, it's a story that works in its own right. However, if you have read Pride and Prejudice and are a fan of that, there are lots of um, references. Little Easter eggs. Yeah, little Easter eggs yeah. that will amuse and, um, um, and please you. And, and it's kind of fun spotting them. We, we can always tell what kind of audience we got in because of what they laugh at or what, what you hear recognised. So yeah. there are some obvious ones. There's, like the, there's a, a reference to the famous first line of Pride and Prejudice yes. in there, buried in there somewhere. Okay. Yeah. So when that gets a... Sometimes we have roaring laughs. Sometimes, sometimes it's just a little murmur. Little yeah. Oh, that's like funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So the, there's there's obscure and less obscure references to Pride and Prejudice in there to enjoy. But mm-hmm. on its own, it's a very charming, witty, um, delightful play about truth and choice and love, love. and yeah, family. I think it's a play for everyone because yeah. it, exactly like that, it explores all these different kinds of themes that I think were are very relevant to absolutely everyone. Like, and, and you just get to come and laugh also. So yeah. it's, it, it really is delightful. Yeah, it's super delightful. Like I left happy. And, and then, it, yeah, it's delightful and happy, and then it's also very deep mm-hmm. because it's exploring like issues of agency and choice and self-discovery and being a woman and all these things too. So yeah, yeah I think it's very relevant. Well, thank you, Andrew, Ayana. I have really enjoyed our conversation today, and I really love the play. So it's playing through um, November 10th at Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park, and uh, hopefully everyone will have a chance to go see it. Cincyplay.com. Yes, Cincyplay.com. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so thank you for joining us on The Twelfth Story. To make sure you catch every episode, subscribe through iTunes or SoundCloud. And your good words are better than any advertisement. If you like what you heard, tell your friends or tweet to us us at Mercantile LIB. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guests, Ayana Workman and Andrew Fillets. The 12th Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at mercantilelibrary.com where you can learn about and register for all of our upcoming events. You belong here.